Paul's first letter to Timothy. Paul spent many years traveling about and starting new churches, and he developed a large team of co-workers in this mission. Timothy was one of these. Paul was once in the city of Lystra, and he met Timothy's faithful mother and grandmother, and he was impressed by Timothy's passion and devotion to Jesus. And so Paul mentored him for many years and eventually started sending him on missions to different churches. And so when Paul got word about a group of leaders who infiltrated the influential church in Ephesus, they were spreading incorrect views about Jesus and what it means to follow him, he sent Timothy to confront these leaders and restore order to this church. So after Timothy arrived there, Paul sent this letter to follow up and instruct him on how to fulfill this mission. The letter has a really cool design. There's an opening and closing commission to Timothy to go confront these leaders and their bad theology. And then these surround two large central sections that are full of really practical instructions about the problems that Timothy faced in the Ephesian church. And then finally, all these sections are linked together or concluded by a series of three poems that each exalt the risen Jesus as the king of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we are in 1 Timothy this morning. And if you're following along in our, our Bible reading plan, going through Paul's letters, you know that we've skipped a bunch since last Sunday because we did Ephesians last Sunday. But that's because now you're reading these shorter letters that are like three and four chapters long. So you go through a couple every day. So we're not going to preach on all of them, which means you have to actually do your homework and read on your own. Um, so 1 Timothy, um, the video gives you the breakdown of the structure, right? So the first and last chapter of the letter are these commissions to Timothy. We're focused on what's in the middle, which are the, the practical instructions that he's supposed to not only implement in his ministry, but pass along to the church he's talking to. So we're going to start in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 8. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. We might not draw a natural connection between praying for kings and all who are in high positions and for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, but Paul says that there is a connection there. Most of us have no trouble praying for ourselves, and we have no trouble praying for our close relatives and our friends and, and, and the people we actually know. And I would bet, for most of us, uh, we would say that the biggest problem in our prayer life is actually a lack of consistency, not that we don't pray for enough people, right? How many of us actually uh, sit down and have a dedicated time of prayer every day? 
the fact you're all silent tells me the answer is none of you. Right? Uh, and if I were to challenge you to actually do that, to, to actually sit down and have a dedicated time of prayer every day and to write out a list of, of people to pray for so that you would always know kind of consistently in advance who you're going to pray for, my bet is uh, we would all focus on those closest to us, right? Our spouses, our children, our parents, our siblings, our friends, our coworkers. Um, and, and then we'd maybe pray for all the, the things in our own life that, that we feel we need God's help with. And we've all got a long list of that stuff, don't we? Um, and, and that all makes perfect sense, and we should absolutely be praying for all of those people and all of those things. But Paul kind of seems to indicate he thinks we should go in the other direction first. Pray for all people, and then specifically for kings and people who are in high positions. The people who, by virtue of their role in society, are what hold the world together. And that's a really weird concept for us. We, we don't really do that. We might on occasion pray for our president, uh, but only if we voted for him, right? <laughs> you don't pray for the other guy. I doubt, though, I doubt that even if our guy wins the election, I doubt that many of us really consistently pray for the people who are leading our country on a daily basis. And, and I'm pretty certain none of us are praying for the rulers of other countries at all. We just don't think to do it. I mean, it's not something that pops into our head. Yeah, I should pray for the government of Canada or of whatever other country you want to slot in there. And that's because we are really fortunate. We live in a stable democracy. We get to vote. We get to express our opinion of how the country should be run, and we have freedom of speech. And every four years, we experience a peaceful transfer of power. And because that's been our experience for our entire lives, we think that's the norm, that that's how things usually go. But it's not. We are the outliers, not just in the modern world, but in all of human history, we are the outliers. In most places, in most times, peaceful transfers of power are rare. Now, our biggest complaint is usually that we wish they would use our tax money better, or not at all, um, or that we disagree with their policies. Uh, but there are plenty of people still in the world today who live under unstable governments or outright tyranny, and they've never known anything else. There are plenty of people who live in terror that their government will collapse or that their government will have them arrested, tortured, or killed with no warning and no due process because due process doesn't exist in their country. That's far more normal than what we experience. And we see this play out on our TVs, our computers, our phones every day if you pay attention. And friends, if you lived in Somalia right now, wouldn't you be on your knees begging God to send a wise ruler who could restore peace and justice and order? The ancient Jews lived for generations under oppressive pagan regimes that would repeatedly try to annihilate them in their faith. And they would often pray that God would overthrow the tyrants and set them free. You can see those prayers written out in the Psalms time and time again. But the prophet Jeremiah also taught them to do something else, to pray for the peace of Babylon. Because they lived in Babylon, and that meant what was good for Babylon was good for them. If Babylon had peace, they would have peace. So they have this kind of weird 
a little confusing thing to do where they, they simultaneously pray for, for these evil rulers to be overthrown, but they also pray for God to give them wisdom and justice and compassion at the same time. Why? Because, yes, they would love to be free, but they also recognize that it's better for them and for everyone if they're stuck with this person in power. It's better that they be wise and temperate and well-ordered. And that tradition continued within the Jewish faith right up to today. It still happens. But during Paul's day, it happens with Rome. There's a really strange thing that happens where the Roman Empire has a law that requires all their subject peoples to pray to the emperor because he's a god. But they carve out an exception for the Jews when they realize the Jews are just not going to do it. Their, their religion forbids them from doing it. So they say, okay, that's fine. You don't have to pray to the emperor. You just pray to your God on his behalf. And they did. Even as they, they recognized that, that they thought the emperor was wicked, that he was setting himself up as a false god, that they prayed for God to overthrow the Roman Empire, they also prayed to God on his behalf. Because they recognized that as long as they've got to live under his government, it's better if he's wise and merciful and just and compassionate. This is the background for what Paul writes here in chapter 2. Yes, Jesus is the true ruler of the world. Yes, the Roman regime is evil. Yes, the emperor set himself up as a false god. Pray for him anyway because it's better for you if he's wise, just, temperate, and an overall good ruler. And the same goes for all the people in his government under him. It's better for the whole world if the people in positions of power are wise, just, temperate, and men and women of high character. Even if the rulers we pray for flatly reject God, even if they embrace policies we think are evil, if they rule well, they create the peace and the social stability that allows the gospel to spread. Paul never for a moment thought the Roman emperor was a good guy. He consistently preaches against him. He consistently tells people, no, 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 Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. But he was able to do that while walking on the roads that the Roman Empire built, which were safe because the Roman soldiers killed the bandits in the, in the hillsides. He rode on ships on oceans that were safe because the Roman military wiped out the pirates that used to plague the Mediterranean Sea. He was able to go from town to town, from nation to nation, because the Romans had created peace within their borders. So he recognized that, yes, even though this government is wicked, God is still using it for his purposes. The order and the peace they create is better than the chaos and anarchy that would exist if they weren't there. We are called, therefore, to pray for our rulers. Even if we might feel called at times to pray against them, we're still called to pray for them. If they're going to be in charge of us, it's better for everyone if they're wise, merciful, compassionate. And you can even pray, by the way, for them to come to faith in Jesus, because that's really the best. If you voted for Trump, do you pray for Biden? Don't lie to me. <laughs> if you voted for Hillary, did you pray for Trump? Right? We don't do that. It's time we start. Most of us are going to struggle with that because we have this, this weird sense deep down that like, if we pray for someone, it means we support them. Or we're, or we're like worried that if we start praying for someone, that means we're going to start to like them and we don't want to start to like them. 
But Paul's message is that we ought to be praying not just for our own government, but for all governments, for all world leaders, because we should be seeking the peace and stability of the entire world. That should be something near and dear to all of our hearts. And it's very easy for us to get sort of bogged down in our little American bubble and only see what happens here and miss out on what's going on in the rest of the world. But Christians aren't supposed to have that luxury because we have brothers and sisters in every country on every continent. And we're supposed to pray for their peace and stability in their countries as well as ours. That's meant to be a core part of our prayer life. And, and the reason is, it only takes about five seconds of scanning the news every day to realize if you want peace and stability worldwide, it's going to have to be God who does it. There is no other hope for that. But frankly, if you have genuine hope that God is at work in the world, that he is working towards creating peace and stability worldwide, isn't it a lot easier to get through your day? That's a much better hope than the things that we tend to put our hope in. See, the call to pray is also a call to think, because you have to decide what you're going to say when you pray, you know. It's a call to think wisely and maturely about the world in which we live, to, to reject the, the simplistic agenda that says we either idolize the current regime or we work to overthrow it either peacefully or otherwise. And, and that's how the world sees it. Either you idolize those in power or you figure out how to get them out of power. And Paul says, no. You pray for those in power that they would be wise, just, and good rulers. You may not like them. You may want them to be overthrown, but you better do this too. And the interesting thing is if you go back and you read the things written by the early Christians, what you find is they never cared much how someone got into a position of power. They weren't very bothered if someone was elected democratically or if they were a monarch or if they came to power through a military coup. They didn't seem to be too bothered by how they got power, but they cared a whole lot what they did with power once they had it. Mostly because they recognized that they couldn't do anything about how that person rose to power, but through their prayer they could maybe do something about how they wielded the power. And they recognized that God can and does use anyone for his purposes. So the first instruction is to pray, not just for you and for the people in your circle and for your church and for your community, but to, but to have an eye towards the whole world, the entire kingdom of God, and all the work that God is doing in the world as you pray. And that involves praying for world rulers and world leaders, even if you don't like them, even if you think they're evil. And now we're going to pivot into everybody's favorite part of First Timothy, starting in verse 9. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Does it mention hats? It's okay. <laughs> but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Don't you love that passage? I'm just... <laughs> you can't talk about this letter without talking about what Paul says about women. 
because this passage is, of course, very often cited as sort of the prime example of either the biblical support for, you know, keeping women in their proper place, uh, or the outdated patriarchal views of the New Testament writers, depending on who you talk to. And part of the problem is that we read it through the lens of our own culture wars. And so rather than trying to understand what Paul was actually talking about and what problems he was specifically dealing with, we read our own issues into the text. If you take a step back and you look at the whole New Testament, you should immediately begin to question the the interpretation that this passage bans women in leadership. Because women were the first to witness the resurrection. That means they were the first apostles. Paul references women apostles in Romans 16. And in 1 Corinthians 11, he, he seems to be expecting that women will be praying and prophesying out loud in public in the church. In Luke 10, Mary of Bethany is explicitly portrayed as a disciple sitting at the feet of Jesus to learn from him. And the thing is, being a disciple implies that one day you will be a teacher. You're discipled for a purpose. So this is not a passage that forbids women in leadership. It's a passage commanding that women should be allowed to learn. And that is revolutionary in Paul's day. Women are not educated in Paul's day. They're not taught. Very likely, most of them are illiterate. And that's not just a thing that comes from the the Jewish Middle Eastern area. That's a thing that comes from Greek and Roman ideas, too, because in Greco-Roman philosophy, women are considered an inferior form of humanity. Women aren't allowed to testify in court trials because their witness is unreliable. And Paul is saying, no, no, they are supposed to learn. And they're to be in full submission, not to their husbands or to the men, but to their teachers. So the bit about them being submissive and quiet is the same thing he would say to the male students who were there to learn. If you're there to learn, you submit to your teacher, you be quiet and let them talk. And you get verse 12, right? I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, this translation into English doesn't work very well because the original Greek doesn't just translate that cleanly. But the actual real thrust of it would read more like, I'm not implying that I'm setting up women as the new authority over men, just like men used to be the authority over women. And the background here is that Timothy is in Ephesus when he gets this letter, and the biggest religion in Ephesus is the cult of Artemis, which is an all-female-led religion. All of the priests are women, and they run the show, and they dominate them, and it is a reversal of the usual gender roles of the day. And so what Paul is insisting on is that male and female roles have to be completely rethought in the light of Jesus. It's no longer acceptable for men to dominate women or for women to dominate men. That's all they've really known. One side dominates the other. If you empower one, then the dominance must just flip. And Paul is saying, no, it doesn't work like that anymore. Women are allowed to learn and teach just like the men, but this isn't about switching roles so that women become dominant. It's about recognizing that God can and does work through men and women equally, and neither is superior to the other. In fact, in verses 8 and 9, he talks about the men should pray, lifting up hands without anger or quarreling, and then goes into his list of 
women in their respectable apparel. But what he's doing is he's listing the common male and female stereotypes which Christians are set free from. You don't have to be what everyone expects you to be. You've been set free to be servants of Christ. And then he ends with this reference to Adam and Eve. And the thing is, this is not an explanation of why women should be kept submissive. It's the opposite. It's a warning. Look what happened when Eve was deceived. Make sure your women have learned and are educated so they can't be deceived anymore. Women need to learn and lead just as much as the men do so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. So from all this, we can infer that there are people in the church in Ephesus who are trying to prevent the women in that church from being disciples, from being taught to read the scriptures on their own, from praying in church, perhaps. And Paul is saying, no, sorry, that doesn't fly with Jesus. The women and the men have their roles to play within the church, and for that to work, everyone's got to be able to read the Bible on their own. Everyone's got to be free to learn and study on their own under the, under the guidance of wise teachers. And all that submissiveness is directed towards the teachers, not women must be submissive to the men. And I'm not just saying that because I have to. <laughs> and that brings us into chapter 3, and Paul will begin talking about the, the, the qualifications for people in leadership. And we're going to skip over the, the bit about the qualifications for a, a bishop or an overseer, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but we're going to go into verse 8 of chapter 3. <coughs> Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested First, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, a deacon here is a, a church leader who isn't necessarily the pastor. And, and part of the difficulty in figuring out what these roles were in the early churches is that their churches just didn't work like ours did. You didn't have one big gathering every single Sunday in one building that was just for that. You had a church that was sort of scattered in the community, and you had little house churches that would meet. Uh, and they might come together once a week or so to share a meal, to share communion. And so you had an overseer or a bishop who sort of oversaw the whole church, and you had different people in different roles, people leading the house churches. The word deacon literally just means servant, and so it's, it's not defined well. We don't really know for sure what exactly they did. They might have done different things in different churches. Um, so all we know is that they've, they've got some measure of authority and respect. They have some responsibility for organizing and administering the church, and they've clearly got some level of teaching responsibility also. Um, in other words, it's basically all of you. Whether you're in a leadership role or not, whether whatever you're doing, you have some responsibility for teaching, for proclaiming the gospel to the world outside these walls. So all of you will fall under that label pretty much all of the time. Essentially, anybody who is not a brand new Christian and who's been baptized and who's been educated in the faith is going to fall into that category. 
of someone who is expected to be able to at least do some teaching, to be able to proclaim the gospel to the people outside the church. And that poses some questions for us, like, what are you doing for your church? How are you serving? How are you teaching? Are you proclaiming the gospel to people who are not already here? And this passage insists that we pay attention to a person's character before we give them any sort of responsibility. Right? We're all expected to model a certain kind of behavior. So being dignified always, you know, it, it, it does call to mind certain images, right? Um, other translations listed as serious-minded, um, but it doesn't mean like gloomy or no sense of humor. It just means being able to concentrate on the things that really matter and carry yourself in a manner that is appropriate to, to someone who is representing God on earth. The next phrase is double-tongued, but the, the word literally means double-worded referring to someone who says one thing today and then contradicts themselves tomorrow. Unreliable, untrustworthy, dishonest. So already a deacon should be honest, trustworthy, focused, mature. Next up is alcohol and money, our two favorite things. Now Paul doesn't ever forbid the consumption of alcohol, but we are supposed to know when to stop. And that is pretty much the sum of the New Testament teaching on alcohol. It's not forbidden, but you need to know when to stop, which is usually one drink before you think you should. <laughs> Money is probably the bigger issue, right? He warns about being greedy for dishonest gain. The thing is, money and power are tightly connected, and, and any position of responsibility comes with some power. And, and you may not think that there's a whole lot of money to be siphoned off of churches, but you'd be surprised at, at what people will do for just a little bit of money. Before you give someone any measure of power, make sure they're responsible and restrained in their use of money and that they are of high enough character to resist the temptation. And that's tricky. But I've seen plenty of times when someone has been put in a position of power and authority in a church and abuse that for personal gain for things that just didn't seem worth it. Next, he insists that Christian leaders should have a firm faith and a clear conscience. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that they are like totally free from sin and perfect and never make a mistake. But it does mean that they shouldn't have any hidden, ongoing sins. So to refer back to his list from above, someone who's, who's constantly dishonest is probably not going to qualify. Someone who's got a hidden addiction is not going to qualify. Someone who is doing nefarious things with their money wouldn't qualify. And you're supposed to test them to make sure you bring all of those things to light. That's quite the challenge. And finally, he insists that deacons, and, and be they women or men, right? I mean, he, he talks about men in this letter, but he references female deacons in other letters that they keep their households in good order. Now, this does not mean a like thoroughly disciplined, strict family where the children are all perfect little angels who only speak when spoken to. Um, it means a family where Christ-like love, respect, and maturity is modeled and lived out, which starts with the parents. Because if a person can't establish that kind of behavior in their own home, it's unlikely they'll be able to do it in the church. 
And this all provides us with guidelines for how we are all called to live. Because you may not be in a position of leadership now. You may have no interest in being in any kind of position of leadership. But the thing is, there are not like levels of Christians. We aren't ranked. There's no hierarchy here. There's no like, okay, you have to be this holy to be a leader. But if you're not a leader, you don't have to be that holy. You can just do whatever you want. It doesn't work like that. The reason these are the qualifications for leaders is this is what a Christian is supposed to look like. This isn't like a higher standard that leaders are called to. This is just the regular standard for everyone. You can't be a leader if you just don't meet the basic standard. This is how we're supposed to live. This is our measuring stick. This is why it matters to pay attention to what Paul says are the qualifications for a leader because they're not special. They're the same qualifications for being a Christian. The question they're asking when they evaluate someone to be a deacon is not, are they especially holy? Are they better than everyone else? It's, are they actually a Christian? That's the qualification. Are they actually doing what a Christian is supposed to do. Yes? Great. Let him in. And he brings it all together here in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So he talks about the mystery of godliness. And in the ancient world, a mystery was an explicitly religious word. A mystery was something that most people couldn't understand except for a select few who knew the secret. And so most of the major pagan religions had these mystery cults where if you were allowed into the inner circle, if you passed certain tests and performed certain rituals, you would be given access to the mystery. And if that sounds a bit like a weird get-rich-quick scheme or, a, or like a MLM, it's a, little, it's a little bit like that. It's a little bit like a pyramid scheme. Paul calls this the mystery of Christ, playing on pagan ideology and applying it to his own religion, the mystery of godliness. The rest of the world won't understand this but you will, because you know Jesus. And now you reshape your personal story around the story of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, the church becomes a stabilizing force which helps God's truth to be seen in the world. As long as the church is solidly founded on God's truth, people will see and know the truth by watching and listening to us. That's why all of this matters. That's why holiness matters. It's why character matters. It's why we have to think deeply about our behavior, our speech, our relationships, and everything else. People see us. They hear us. And they base their understanding of God on how we live, how we talk, how we treat each other, and how we treat them. That's what it means to be Christ's representatives here on earth. We are meant to be representing God. People form their opinions on the Christian God based on what they see Christians doing, what they hear us saying, 
and how they experience us treating them. Folks, I know people who have both come to the faith and left the faith based on their treatment at the hands of Christians. It goes both ways. We are his representatives for good or for ill. The moment you call yourself a Christian, the moment you say you're part of a church, the stakes are raised because now you are representing God to everyone you tell that to. And you don't get to take a day off, right? Just because you don't have the fish bumper sticker on your car doesn't mean you can just behave however you want. It's easy to be try and be just like everyone else, to, to, to be normal, to fit in. Life is simpler when we are not trying to be holy. We can give in to all the temptations that we face. We can give in to our worst impulses. We have nothing to resist. If we just try and stop being his representative for a little bit, life will be a lot simpler.